welcome back to Create Space, a podcast that finds joy in the art of storytelling. Today, we are talking about shame. Sounds fun, right? Now, if you bristled at the very mention of that word, shame, you aren't alone. Shame isn't something that most of us want to discuss. It's embarrassing and it's difficult to explain. And a lot of times we think that we're the only ones who deal with shame, at least to the capacity that we do, which is completely untrue, by the way. Shame is a universal emotion. Every single person in this world has felt shame at one time or another. Now, for many years, I've been an avid reader of shame researcher Dr. Brene Brown. Um, Her books, uh, Daring Greatly and Rising Strong, are um, arguably her most popular works. But I recently was put onto another one of her books called I Thought It Was Just Me, But It Isn't. And it's really, really good. And it talks all about how shame is this universal emotion. And so one of the quotes from the book, she says, shame is a silent epidemic. It's a problem of epidemic proportions because it has an impact on all of us. What makes it silent is our inability or our unwillingness to talk openly about shame and explore the ways in which it affects our individual lives, our families, our communities and society. So over the next two weeks, I want to talk about what shame looks like within the creative community specifically. To start, today, we're going to be looking at shame from more of an intrinsic perspective. So in other words, how does our own shame keep us from stepping into our true potential? And what could we be doing to overcome what is this massively debilitating vulnerability? So the next week, we're going to take more of a macro look at shame, and I want to discuss the way that it manifests in the collective. So we're going to talk about how storytellers specifically can really effectively combat shame in others through things like perspective taking, empathy, and compassion. So one thing I know is that it's really difficult to sit in someone else's shame with them and offer empathy if you don't know how to how yet to sit in your own feelings of shame, right? So you have to take care of it inward before you can really push it outward. So that's where we're going to start with this episode is on the inward nature of shame and how to work with it within ourselves. Now, a lot of the content that you're going to hear over the next two episodes are highly influenced by Dr. Brene Brown, who I mentioned earlier, um, as well as Dr. Kristen Neff, who's kind of the pioneer of self-compassion work. Uh, And then finally, from my own experiences with both DBT and CBT therapy. So DBT stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy, and it's a derivative or kind of an expansion of CBT, which stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. So I'm currently finishing up a six-month kind of intensive one-on-one DBT course with a therapist here locally. Uh, So DBT was originally developed by Dr. Marsha Linehan, and it focuses on four pillars. So those four pillars are distress tolerance, emotional regulation, mindfulness, and interpersonal effectiveness. And I've linked uh, some articles and links about each of those sources. So Brene Brown, uh, Dr. Kristen Neff, and uh, Marsha Linehan Um, into the show notes page. So if you're interested, I would highly encourage you to look more into all of those, those sources. Now, you might be wondering why 
things like mental and emotional health are coming up so often in Create Space, it might not seem like a natural connection that emotional and mental health would connect to storytelling, at least not at first glance. But the truth is, creativity and creative work in general is such an emotional craft. You have to be able to accept, understand, and fully embrace the entire range of human emotion in order to be a great storyteller. And something that I've learned over the years is that there's one kind of main thing that shuts down the honest and open sharing of emotion and thus halts the creative process almost immediately. And I'm talking about shame. So by addressing this important emotion, we can open our hearts and create in a more impactful and meaningful way. So first we need to define shame. We all know the word, we've all heard the word, but I wanna make sure that we're all using the same working definition of what exactly shame is. So Brene Brown uses a concise and effective definition in her book, which is shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. She also adds on that nothing silences us as effectively as shame. And this, my friends, is why it's such a barrier to creativity. When we feel flawed, when we feel unworthy, when we're afraid of not belonging, we are effectively silenced, right? We don't tell our stories, we don't create, and we can't appreciate others' stories. So let's take a minute to talk about a few related words, right? So now we have a working definition of shame, but there are three other words that tend to kind of get used synonymously. Those three other words are embarrassment, guilt, and humiliation. So what's the difference here? They seem really similar, but words are important, right? The connotations of each word are important. So while the words are similar, the thoughts that they create in our minds are wildly different. Let's start with embarrassment. Embarrassment is the lowest intensity emotion on this list. We generally recognize that embarrassing moments are universal. They happen to everyone. Uh, we usually get that they're temporary, um, that they're not going to last forever. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes we can find some humor in them, right? Because a lot of times embarrassment is accidental. There's no intentionality behind it. So let's move on to guilt. Guilt is a working emotion that keeps us acting according to our values. So when we feel guilty, it's because we've acted in a way that we know that we shouldn't have. So there's intention behind guilt that there isn't an embarrassment, right? We, we mentioned that embarrassment might be accidental, right? You don't feel guilty if you trip and fall down the stairs. You feel embarrassed if you trip and fall down the stairs because that was an accident. You feel guilty if you, you know, took something that wasn't yours and you know that that's not the right way to have acted. The other paramount tenet of guilt is that you know you could have done better. You know that you are not the person who typically does whatever it is that you're feeling guilty about, okay? So you don't identify as a guilty person. You feel guilt on a situational basis. Next up, humiliation. The main differentiator of humiliation is where it's coming from. 
So embarrassment, like we discussed, is often accidental or situational. Guilt is typically internal, so it's placed there through your own value system. Now, humiliation is usually caused externally, typically by another person or another group. And a lot of times there is this inherent intentionality to it. A meta emotion, so a, an emotion about the emotion of humiliation is anger. So a lot of times if you feel feel humiliated, your meta emotion there is anger. You feel like someone has intentionally targeted you in order to make you feel unworthy or make you feel less than. So those three definitions bring us back to shame. What is it that sets shame apart from those other three words? The answer to that is identity. So embarrassment, guilt, and humiliation are things that you feel, not things that you are. Shame is different. Shame becomes an identity, and that's why it's so dangerous. So again, guilt is when you believe you didn't measure up to who you are capable of being. Shame is when you believe you don't measure up at all, despite your best intentions. We believe that there's no way out of shame because we believe we are shameful. We feel guilty, but we embody shame. That's the difference. And that is why shame is so poisonous and so pervasive. Now, here's where it really comes together. So shame makes us feel unworthy and unvalued, which is bad enough, right? But then that unworthiness creates this massive rupture because the byproducts of shame are blame and disconnection. In fact, shame really is just the fear of disconnection. So let me explain that. We are afraid that if the shame that we feel were to be exposed to other people, we would be ostracized or we would be cast out by others, right? So if whatever it is deep inside of us that we feel shame about, we think that if other people were to know about that, we would be cast out. So in that way, shame is this fear of becoming disconnected from the group. And we have this natural desire to be included. So Brene Brown quoted two of her interviewees in the book. Um, I thought it was just me, but it isn't. So she interviewed a lot of women about what they thought shame was or how they defined it. And there were two that were really poignant that I wanted to share with you. So one of her interviewees said, shame is hating yourself and understanding why other people hate you too. And another one said, shame is like a prison that you deserve to be in because there's something wrong with you. Now, we talked in episode one, right? Way back on January 1st, we talked about how important community and connection are to the creative process. So those two quotes I just read to you illustrate just how quickly and easily shame can drill right through all of that. And it manifests in extreme, uncomfortable and painful disconnection. So that's not good. <laughs> and what's worse is that instead of addressing shame head on, we kind of as a as an overall society have chosen the if you can't beat them, join them tactic. 
So another quote from Brene Brown's book, she puts it this way. She said, shame has strangely become both a form of self-protection and also a popular source of entertainment. Name-calling and character assassinations have replaced national discussions about religion, politics, and culture. Isn't that interesting? I just find that interesting. We combat our own feelings of shame by putting them onto someone else. And I say I find that interesting, but I guess it's really not surprising as it's a pretty common coping tactic to take out our emotions on others. But you can see how, whether surprising or not, you can see how this would perpetuate a very painful and incredibly unhelpful cycle. So you feel unworthy and therefore you treat others as if they are unworthy so that you in turn can feel more valuable. But that's not how it works, right? All you've really done is planted that seed of shame into someone else. So the constant struggle to feel accepted and worthy is absolutely unrelenting because we're in a society that puts so much importance on fitting in. But it's not always someone else putting us down. The most painful shaming experience are often self-inflicted. So yes, society is a part of it. The standards that we are expected to meet in order to fit in are a huge part of it. But based on the conditioning that we've received, those most painful shaming experiences are coming from within ourselves. Whew. So all of this sounds really bad, doesn't it? Right? I've just set up the first several minutes of this podcast to sound really bad. But what can we do? How can we change this so that we can connect and engage and create in the ways that we were always meant to show up in this world. The first and most important thing that we can do is pull back the curtains. Shame is an epidemic because we don't talk about it, because we ignore it. It is painful and it is complex and it is very uncomfortable. So our bodies just tell us, nope, I don't like that. I don't wanna go there. Thank you very much. Let's bottle it up, ignore it, and never let it see the light of day. But all that's doing is fueling the fire. Ignoring it is giving that shame more and more and more power. Now, I told you earlier that this was going to be a two-part episode series. So in this first section, we're specifically talking about how we can address shame within ourselves. So how do we go to the source? Because it's way harder to actually be honest with yourself than we often realize. We have the ability to manipulate ourselves and ignore our emotions all of the time, whether you realize you're doing it or not. So that's where we're starting today. Now, the second part is about bringing that open dialogue to the collective through the tactic of storytelling. But we can't get that far without acknowledging the inner shame first. So let's start there. Now, I mentioned earlier that the byproducts of shame are blame and disconnection. Therefore, their opposites must be the antidotes to shame. So what are the opposites of blame and disconnection? Compassion and connection. Those two things together will build empathy, which absolutely shatters shame. So let's first explore the word compassion. Compassion is when we recognize the suffering of others and then we take action to help. So similarly, self-compassion involves turning those same feelings of compassion inward to ourselves. 
Shame is going to make you judge and criticize yourself. But self-compassion allows you to provide kindness and understanding to yourself. So I mentioned Dr. Kristen Neff earlier. Uh, Again, she is the pioneer of self-compassion work. And she has defined three distinct pillars of self-compassion. Those three pillars are self-kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. So we're going to look at all three of those pillars individually and kind of break them down. Let's look at the self-kindness piece first. We want to train ourselves to react with kindness instead of judgment when we feel like we aren't measuring up. Right? We can't stop ourselves from feeling like we aren't measuring up. There are times that you're going to feel like you don't belong or you don't fit in or you're not doing something the way you wish that you were. We can't stop that. But we can learn to react with kindness instead of with judgment. So this is something that a lot of us are learning to incorporate into our parenting um, with trainings like conscious discipline, love and logic, um, gentle parenting. Those types of techniques are becoming popular. And the basis of that is to approach your children's mistakes with kindness instead of judgment. So you would think that since we're learning this in an external sort of way, it should feel pretty natural to turn that kindness inward. And yet it's not. In fact, it feels weirdly unnatural to turn it inward. For me, at least. I I shouldn't speak on behalf of everyone, but at least for me, judgment is what comes naturally to me. So I've been exploring that quite a bit over the past several months. The first time I heard it talked about was on the podcast Untethered. So I've mentioned this show before on Create Space. Uh, and Untethered is a podcast by Jen Liss. So she's a friend of mine um, and actually went to uh, Wichita State for her undergrad. And her show is fantastic. So I'll put a link to it in the show notes page. Uh, but she mentioned a couple of times in a few episodes that she was doing a judgment cleanse. And I thought that was interesting because I was like, hmm, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to be doing a judgment cleanse? How much judgment do I actually have in my life, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of in the back of my brain. Then during this six-month DBT course that I mentioned to you guys earlier, which was dialectical behavior therapy, um, I learned just how many of my thoughts were in fact judgmental. So things that I phrased in my brain as facts were in fact not (laughs) facts at all. They were judgmental opinions that I had of myself. I was manipulating myself with my own inner judgment. And we all do that. So here's an example uh, that I discovered recently of where I was doing this. There were two days in the span of just a couple of months um, that I had forgotten to give my child the stimulant medication that they needed before school. And on each of those days, we got emails from their teacher just kind of asking if we had forgotten, being like, hey, you know, the behaviors are a little interesting today. It's not what we're used to seeing. Did he by chance not take his medication? So what I said to myself was, I'm a negligent mother because I can't even remember to give my kid their medication, you know, and on the days that his dad is with him in the morning, you know, they don't forget to have him take his meds. So I convinced myself through these judgmental internalized thoughts that I was less than because I had forgotten to give him his medication two times. And I also took that as a value judgment on my worthiness and capability as a mother. So now that same situation, when reframed from 
a factual perspective with an emphasis on self-compassion sounded a little bit different. Well, actually a lot different. Instead of saying, I'm a negligent mother, I was saying, I too have ADHD, which is probably why my son has it. And so sometimes it's a little bit harder for me to remember things in comparison to my neurotypical husband. So do you see how in that first statement, I embodied the judgment, right? I used that judgment to define my value, or in this case, my lack of value. Thus, shame was born. So then in the second statement, I reframed it and I stated the facts and I didn't identify myself with the behavior. I didn't place a value marker on the behavior and I didn't place intentionality on the behavior. I, I allowed it to be a mistake. Now, this isn't just about making myself feel better about making a mistake. Reducing shame does make us feel better, but it's not just about that. It's not just about, oh, I want to feel better and be nicer to myself. Shame is not an effective agent of change. No one has made lasting, healthy, productive changes from a place of shame. Short term, sure. We can shame ourselves into doing all sorts of things, but not long-term healthy changes because that shame is a part of our identity. So until we can let that identity go, we can't make long-term improvements. So yes, it does sound nice to treat yourself with compassion. It does make me feel better to reframe that negligent mother thought with compassion, but it's not just about that. It's really practical because it's an effective and efficient way to facilitate positive behavior change. And there is absolutely research to back up that claim. So anecdotally, what I can tell you is that I was beating myself up and saying things like, oh, I'm so forgetful. I'm a negligent mom. I can't believe this. I just am not doing anything right. And when I was beating myself up like that, I wasn't changing. You know, I was stewing and I was wallowing in my own self-pity but I wasn't changing. However, when I was able to reframe that and I was able to say, okay, so this is a struggle that I have. What's something that I could do to help myself and make it easier for me to remember things in the morning before school? And I ended up setting a recurring timer on my phone and it goes off every weekday at a certain time. And sometimes I remember to give my kid the medication before the alarm goes off. And sometimes I don't. But either way, I have that alarm as a failsafe. So when I was able to address the problem for what it was from a place of self-kindness and not from a place of judgment, only then was I able to process the problem and come up with effective solutions. Now, in terms of storytelling, I would never have told you that story if I was still shrouded in shame. The week that it happened, the week that the second instance happened, I was way too bothered by what people would think about me or how people would perceive me to tell that story. It wasn't until I had kind of processed that with a therapist and come up with the fact-based, you know, neutral language and all of that, that I am even willing to say that story out loud because I was really feeling shameful about it. So think about that for a second. Think about how many incredible stories that you have heard over your lifetime that would never have been told 
if the author or the creator or the painter or whoever had been too full of shame to share it. And now think about this. This is even more powerful to me. Think about how many stories are out there right now just waiting to be told. But the storyteller is still too full of shame to share that story. So it sits in this proverbial limbo because it's a wonderful story that would really help the collective to hear, but shame is silencing it. That thought is so convicting to me and it's so powerful to think about. All right, so that's the first pillar. Again, these are all from Dr. Kristen Neff. The first pillar, kindness over judgment. The second pillar is common humanity over isolation. So when we feel shame, we often get into this mode of, I'm the worst ever, or no one else has ever messed up like like I just did. No one else feels this way, at least not to the intensity that I feel it. So when we say these I statements, shame becomes this really isolating emotion. First, we internalize it using those I statements. We think that we're the only person who has suffered to the extent that we have. That in turn makes us completely unwilling to talk about it to anyone else. So that doubles down on the isolation. Now the cure for this isolation is to recognize the shared humanity in mistake making, right? The very definition of human means that we are vulnerable. We are not immortal. We are not perfect. So if we can start to recognize this universal suffering and understand that it's a shared human experience, it's universal, then we can start to chip away at those feelings of isolation and replace them with this concept of common humanity. Finally, last pillar, Dr. Neff's third pillar of self-compassion is mindfulness versus over-identification. So we've already talked about the fact that shame is an identity emotion. We over-identify with whatever the situation is, whatever those feelings are. We take them into ourselves and we own them as if we cannot let them go. They are not feelings that happen to us. They are feelings that we believe are us. Now, mindfulness, however, is a non-judgmental and receptive mind state. So when we practice mindfulness, we can notice and observe our thoughts and we can choose intentionally not to over-identify with them. We can compare the situation to the big picture and we can just make sure and check ourselves to be sure that we're not allowing ourselves to get wrapped up in judgmental or negative thought patterns. So let's bring this back around to the creative process one more time. When we are in shame, we are not in any sort of a flow. We don't have the space to come up with expansive and thoughtful ideas when we're sitting in shame. We don't have the courage to brainstorm with others. We don't have the courage to show our work to people. We aren't being mindful about finding inspiration out in the world and in the people around us because we are so debilitated by our own sense of shame. Now, I address this in my classes during the first week of school every single semester because I find that when a student turns in a video project or an audio piece or a design that they've made in one of my classes, 
many of them, I would argue probably most of them, start by apologizing and listing out for me all the things that they did wrong and all the reasons that their work is not up to part. And they usually use I statements like, well, I'm just not a very good editor or I don't have an eye for composition. Then when we share work in class, which I do often because I want to help inspire people and I want to help people get better at sharing their work um, and talking together about their work and peer review and just building that creative community. So when we do that, when we share the work in class, no one wants to share their work because they're terrified of being judged. And this is not an environment that's conducive to learning and growing creatively. So we start to tackle that monumental task of reducing shame and increasing creative courage on day one. So I want to close this episode out by talking about some practical and sort of easy to implement practices that you can use in your own life to work on those three pillars of self-compassion and thus effectively reduce your feelings of shame, your feelings of judgment, and increase those levels of self-compassion so that you can then create the way you were always intended to create. The first thing, my favorite thing, is to write and or journal. So for me, I type. I don't actually write. I like to type. Lately, the way I've been doing it, I do, I do journaling all different ways, by the way. Sometimes I just do what's called a brain download. Um, I learned that from a friend of mine, Jessica Stong, who is a um, coach based in cognitive behavioral therapy. She introduced me to the phrase brain download, where you just kind of write everything that you've been thinking about all day. Um, another term I've heard for that is like brain dump, similar thing. Lately, I've been doing something a little bit different, kind of basing it off of when Jen Liss was talking about the judgment cleanse. I... Uh, Allow myself five minutes to write down every single judgmental thought that I have, every single thing that I feel shame about. So they could be judgmental thoughts about myself, shame about myself. A lot of times they are. But I also let myself get out external judgment as well. So if I'm judging my partner or my kids or my coworkers or people I ran into at Starbucks or whatever, all of that judgment gets put down on paper. Now, I do set a timer for myself for only five minutes because I don't want to get lost in that, right? But I do want to let myself get all of those thoughts out of my brain because I find that many of those judgmental thoughts have been so far below the surface that I almost didn't even realize they were there anymore. But of course, even though I didn't realize them on a conscious level, they are still doing damage. So I set my timer, I write for five minutes, and then after five minutes, I take the time to go back and read what I've written and intentionally reframe those thoughts. So the first thing I do is remove any judgmental statements and replace them with statements of fact. So this doesn't have to mean that you have to reframe everything to a positive. Sometimes we can't get our brains to believe that. And if you don't believe something, it's not helpful. So, you know, if I say I'm a negligent mother or I'm not a very good instructor, I can't really reframe that with I'm the best mother in the world or I'm such an awesome instructor. I'm the best that there ever was because those are not believable statements. Right. But what I can convince myself to believe are the facts of the case. So this is a skill that I learned in dialectical behavior therapy. 
You reframe your judgments, not necessarily spinning them to the positive, but using neutral language and omitting any statement that is evaluative. So this alone will help you become hyper aware of just how much shame and judgment might be going on in your mind on a regular basis. Okay, so writing and reframing in neutral fact-based language. That's, that's the number one exercise that I would suggest. Another tool is to focus on activating your parasympathetic nervous system. So this is the system in your body that calms you down after stressful situations. It's the system that allows you to feel safe and allows you to feel nurtured. So feelings of shame will often trigger your sympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for fight, flight, or freeze. And when you are chronically stuck in a state of fight, flight, or freeze, you're definitely not feeling creative. So tending to and intentionally activating our parasympathetic nervous system will help us to release that tension and return to a balanced state of mind. So what are some things that we can do to activate our parasympathetic nervous system? First thing, you can hum or sing or even yell. Using your voice in any capacity is going to stimulate the vagus nerve, which is a big part of the parasympathetic nervous system. You could also practice breath work. There are loads of breath work exercises that you might choose, uh, but one that I do a lot is called box breathing. So what you do is you put, you picture a square in your mind. So not a real thing that you hold in your hand, but you picture a square in your mind. And as you trace up the left side of that box, that square, you breathe in to a count of four. And then as you trace across the top of the square, you hold that breath for a count of four. Then you trace down the right side of the box in your mind and you exhale to another count of four. And then finally, you hold at the bottom of the breath for a final count of four. So of course, you could use any number that you want. If four is not long enough, you could increase that. If four is too long, you can you know, shrink it down. Um, but you do this box breathing and you can do that cycle of completing the whole four sides as many times as you need to. And what this will do is help activate your parasympathetic nervous system and it will double as a mindfulness practice because it engages your mind as you count and as you visualize that box in your brain. So speaking of mindfulness, this is the last technique I wanna tell you about. I'm someone who has always struggled with mindfulness and I know that I'm not the only one. I have a really hard time trying to quiet my brain and not get distracted and then I find myself feeling like I'm not doing a good job, right? And I shame myself and I say, oh, I'm a terrible meditator. Oh, I'm not good at doing mindfulness. So I'm perpetuating that cycle even while trying to get out of it. So not a good situation. But mindfulness is still really important and really um, effective. So I needed to try to figure out ways to make mindfulness work for me. Two things I do that help me out a lot. The first is to think of every distraction not as a mistake, but as an opportunity to practice course correction. So this is another one that came from my therapist. She said, if you do a two-minute mindful meditation, and if you get distracted, say, seven different times, then yay, what's happened is you've given yourself seven different opportunities to practice gently redirecting your thoughts back to 
the mindfulness meditation back to whatever you intended to place your thoughts. So just simply reframing that and looking at it not as a mistake, but as an opportunity is a huge help for me. Now, the second thing I do is choose really practical and easy mindfulness activities that are rooted in reality. So a lot of mindful meditations that you see, you know, might say to sit quietly and picture a meadow in your brain and there's flowers in this meadow and a babbling brook and the sun is shining and it's beautiful and tell me what you're wearing and tell me what all you see and all these things. And I struggled with that. I got distracted very, very easily. I got wrapped up in the details of this meadow and wondering if this is what my meadow was supposed to look like and should the flowers be pink or should they be orange and just it was really difficult for me. So what I do is I give myself a task for this mindfulness time. So for example, when my therapist taught me this um, concept, she asked me to tell her how many colors I could see on her backpack. So in the room, she had this beautiful crocheted bag and it had tons and tons and tons of different colors on it. So she asked me to to look at it and I stared at it for probably about two minutes and I listed off every single color that I saw. And while it may, might not sound like mindfulness, that is mindfulness. That is intentional focus. It doesn't have to be, you know, a woo-woo imaginative visualization practice. It can be something like that. It can be something that you can do anywhere. So other variations, you could count how many cars you see in a parking lot. You know, maybe you're getting ready to go into a job interview and you're super nervous about it and you really need to calm yourself down and you need to return to a balanced state and get rid of these, you know, feelings of shame and worry that you have. So you could sit in your car and count how many cars are in the parking lot. How many of those cars are white? How many Toyotas do you see? How many trucks do you see? Anything like that. All of that is mindfulness. And at least for me, it's easier to do mindfulness in that way because it is rooted in reality. One more variation of that practice is called the 54321 activity. So you challenge yourself to use all five of your senses. The first thing you do is you name five things that you see. So right now from where I'm sitting, I can see my laptop, I can see the microphone that I'm using, um, I can see a sweatshirt because I'm in my closet. <laughs> As I told you guys, I tend to record if I'm at home And if it's a solo episode, I record in my closet because there's great acoustics, so I can see a sweatshirt. I can also see my water bottle and I can see a pen. So that's five things that I can see from where I'm sitting. Then you name four things that you can hear. After that, you name three things that you can feel, two things that you can smell, and one thing that you can taste. So again, rooted in reality, using all five senses, and something that can keep you engaged and mindful throughout the entire process. So that's basically it for this episode. As a reminder, basically all of what you heard today was taken from the teachings of of Dr. Brene Brown, specifically her book, I Thought It Was Just Me, But It Wasn't. Also, the research and findings from Dr. Kristen Neff, the pioneer of self-compassion work. And then finally, practices from dialectical behavior therapy, which was created by Dr. Marsha Linehan. Um, And again, if you'd like to learn more about any of those sources, please check out the links in the show notes page. 
So next week, we're going to expand this concept of shame resilience to the collective, and we're going to discuss how storytellers can help battle shame and bring about more compassion, connection, and community in the world around us for the greater good. So if you try any of these shame resilience practices, or if you have any comments on the episode, please let me know. I would love to hear from you. You can email me, send me a voice message, or reach out to me on Instagram. And all those links are in the show notes page. Thank you again so much for joining me today. And I will catch you next week right here on Create Space. Mm -hmm.